And we are back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. So World Champs in Cortina have officially begun, but the biggest story, the thing that I can't stop thinking about, is the fact that Ted Ligeti, after this GS race, is retired. He's done. So I've definitely achieved far more in my career than I would have ever thought as a 16, 17-year-old kid when my coaches were telling me I'd be a good college athlete. <laughs> now I have two six-month-old twins, I have a three-year-old, and gives you like a nice perspective on life when you have these little guys running around and having six weeks on the road it's not really manageable anymore i think there's a time in your life where family is more important than the skiing <laughs> that time has come ah. do you want to go super fast to the gates like daddy <laughs> when i grow up oh when you grow up you want to do that too <laughs> ted is retiring with five world championship golds two olympic golds 25 world cup victories and five gs globes we know him as the man who complained about the 35-meter Gieski and then proceeded to win the very first race on it by 2.75 seconds. The man who came across a finish line that same year in Alta Badia winning by 5 seconds. Now, if someone wins by a lot, we call it Ligeti-like margins. We know Ted as the man who created Shred, the man who pulled up to Schladming World Champs and casually grabbed three gold medals. And finally, we know Ted Ligeti as the man who lays down the most beautiful arcs in the world, arcs that transcend the barriers of the sport and fascinate people who have never even heard of ski racing. I personally will never forget watching Ted crush GS during my U16 years, and then I would find the YouTube video and watch that over and over again. My GS skiing was flowing at that time too, and it just seemed like I was channeling Ted's ripping into my own skiing. And so from me, from the greater Arc City, and from everyone who witnessed your magic, thank you, Ted, for inspiring us, for changing the game, for ripping arcs, for representing the United States so well, and for helping ski racing reach an even wider audience. So thank you. I almost feel like we need a moment of silence after that. Uh, it feels like someone died. The good news is, though, that Ted has a whole life ahead of him with his three children, his wife, and his company, Shred. So best of luck to you, Mr. Ligeti. Oh, and if you want to hear the episode I did with Ted back when I worked for Ski Racing Media, just search Ski Racing this week. It'll be one of the most recent episodes. Now, I've got a great show for you today, and... As always, it is made possible by the official sponsorship of Spider Active Sports, who, as you know, makes the U.S. Ski Team uniforms. I also need to thank U.S. Ski and Snowboard for their support. Now, Breezy Johnson, the American downhill girl who's been on fire, calls into the show and we have an awesome conversation. I really like this one. We talk about fear and communicating with coaches and a few other subjects that I hope will get you thinking a little then in our five-minute slot, Loren Ross, the veteran downhiller, joins Breezy in her hotel room in Europe to talk about mentorship on their team. The skiing history segment this week is not going to happen, but next episode I think we may have an actual historian, so stay tuned. And finally, at the end, as always, we read the mail. So now, without further ado, 25-year-old World Cup downhill podium fiend Breezy Johnson. 
Breezy Johnson, welcome to Arc City. I'm so proud and honored to be on the podcast. <laughs> you sound sarcastic. No, I actually am. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. A lot of cool people have been on this podcast. I mean, it's only had like five people on it, but they've all been pretty, pretty cool. Nice. Well, you joined that list. Actually, I think you're the first person on the show, on, as a main guest on the show that hasn't won a World Cup. I clearly am a loser. I, <laughs> um, I didn't. I don't. I don't know why I said that. I didn't mean to make you feel bad. But no, no, um, no, you're fine. I have a lot of faith in you winning because let's start right off into it. You're on a huge streak right now. You've had four. You had your first ever podium in a row. Podium in December, and then you followed it up with three in a row after that. Then a fifth most recently. Um, and so basically, like the question that. I kept saying, like, I kept telling people, hey, I'm going to interview Breezy Johnson. What should I ask her? And everybody was, like, asked that just that sacred age-old question. Like, when someone's on a streak, how did it happen? Like, what clicked? Um, well, I think the, you sort of have to go back. Last season, I came back in January, which people don't do when they come back from, like, six-month ACLs. They're not like, oh, like, I mean, I was coming back from a PCL, MCL injury, but, like, a lot of people, a lot of doctors, other people were like, just take the season off, like, have the summer training prep period, come back, um, you know, in 2020 fall. And I was like, no, I really want to race. I didn't race at all during the 2019 season and so I really wanted to race in the 2020 season so I came back I had had virtually no training at all all summer and Mm -hmm. like in my return I'd only been on snow for like a little over a month and I was like meh whatever like okay and I like got back to World Cup pretty quickly and I was like very pleased with my results I had a fifth place in Bansko I had a fifth place in Cromontana and to do that I'm like no prep is sort of um I'm not gonna say unheard of but uncommon yeah Um, definitely and um so then like you know I went home and I was like you know I'd really been like looking forward to going to like Cortina finals and I like felt like a podium was like at my fingertips and like coming and then obviously COVID happened. And so I just, you know, went home. I worked really hard all summer and like finally got like a training block, which yeah, wasn't like as perfect as usually happens with mm-hmm. um, like summer training just because of COVID and we couldn't train speed in the spring and things like that. But um, so I think to say like what happened is I think just like time and like somewhat like the um the like final return after injury it takes a it takes time to come back after injury and like I was very lucky to like you know come back really well but um then like to have like the summer prep period um really made the difference and like and then since my injury I've just been like you know kind of seize every day so I think sometimes like 
you know, people like even me at the beginning of like my career, I would have like a good result and then I would feel like I didn't deserve it. And then I wouldn't ski to my potential in the next race. Oh, that's an interesting scenario. Now, like, I'm like, you like, there's no reason to like doubt yourself or like question yourself or like do anything except ski your best every day because you never know how many days you're going to get until like the next injury maybe or maybe doesn't strike yeah so let's let's talk about injuries you 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 kind of talked about something i i wanted to talk about already but we can kind of digest it a little bit more so i'm going to rewind um and talk about injury which is one of the more fascinating parts of your story um and jump in if i get any of this wrong but at the end of the 2017 season which was like your first full season in the world cup mm-hmm. you fracture your tibial plateau and then months later first world cup of the season you you show up first race career best a few months after that you play seventh in the, in the olympic downhill which was your second best result ever and then a few months later september 2018 do your acl miss the season you come back to training the next summer boom other knee pcl mcl which you talked about um and so now you're going to miss a full season and a half and you come back in january which you said, but you're almost immediate after you said a month of training, you're almost immediately getting top tens and top fives, which is like some of your best results ever. Um, and then this season, obviously from the first race, you just start on this podium streak. So like you, you said, Oh, you know, in coming back from injury takes a long time, but multiple times you've come back from injury and just thrown up like career results immediately. So in, let's, I want to like, talk about your recoveries um so maybe we could just start off by like talking about i know there's there's just so much to coming back from injury but but to generalize like maybe one thing on the physical side you think you're really good at um and one thing on the mental side well i think one of the like physical things that i'm like really good at is i just like you know you kind of have this choice when you get injured and this is sort of mental sort of physical but you can either like sort of like back off and like try to do some other things and like you know take time and like sort of explore yourself in like other realms and like or you can kind of double down on ski racing and like you know spend just like hours and hours a day trying to rehab and like mentally just like all all of your energies are focused into ski racing. And I, and I think that there's like a really good, um, value in both depending on who you are. I think like Uh Tommy Ford is a great example of the former, like he, you know, broke his, uh, his femur like a while ago. It took him a long time to get back, but he really like, you know, took his time. He went to school, he like developed himself and then like, you know, it took him a while, but then he was, you know, he's one of the best GS skiers in the world. And that's like, Mm -hmm. you know, really incredible. Um, and then there's kind of me who just like, I mean, I was like basically a week out of surgery. I was like in the gym for, you know, eight hours a day, like doing single leg squats on my other leg. I got really good at pull-ups and we were just like throwing everything we could at it. And, um, and it was hard. I mean, I was, you know, definitely spending an enormous amount of time 
like focused on my rehab. I mean, I yeah. After both rehabs, I spent like like two or three months both times sleeping every night with like my foot up on like a bolster, like two feet up in the air, so that like to like keep any swelling from getting in there. Which like if you've ever slept with your foot two feet in the air, it's not that fun. Yeah, I've just been I've just been trying to learn to sleep on my back with this leg injury, and it's it's awful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't I'm not imagine. A back I'm usually a stomach sleeper. Oh my god. So, and and I've been a witness to your rehab because I've been in in the COE when you've been rehabbing, and it's the kind of thing where we'll be exhausted from working out like two or three times that day, and you will be in the gym longer than us like i i don't even know like how you're you have exercises to do for that amount of time but like i ju- you're just like intensely focused i can just see it in your face um and so i guess that's how you did it honey it was just it was just like every single day the, the entire focus of the day and night i guess was just rehabbing yeah yeah so it was yeah that was like the physical side and then the mental side i think i just sort of and naturally have like a very good ability to like most to like especially when I'm skiing to kind of let go of like pain and um like what happened to me and fear and things like that like I've always in my speed career I've always like lived with this mentality of like fear can sit in the back seat but it doesn't have a hand on like the steering wheel i always say that like it's allowed to like be there and like yell at you but it doesn't get to control what you do you have to choose to like you know not uh throw in like a speed check going off the jump you have to choose to like go and arc around this turn or whatever and like fear obviously never wants you to do that but you And it can say that, but you have to do what you need to do anyway. And so it's kind of the same, like, with injury has been, like, well, like, yeah, obviously I'm terrified of getting injured again. I mean, who isn't who's ever been injured? I mean, Mm -hmm. being injured sucks. Um, But I couldn't, like let that play into my mind because I was like, then I'm not going to ski as well. Then I'm going to be more dangerous Then like, I'm more likely to get hurt again. Like this doesn't make any sense. So I just had to kind of like let that go and accept that and then just like move forward with that. And I have, um, yeah. a better ability to do. Oh, uh, sorry. I just got a random call from Buffalo, Wyoming, which I <laughs> don't know where that is. Probably spam. <laughs> Um, yes, but so this is interesting with the way you talk about fear, because a lot of people think the way you ski looks fearless. It's, it's sometimes scary actually the way you Mm -hmm. ski and the way you're putting it down the fall line. And a lot of people, especially outside of ski racing will say, Oh, you know, downhillers are fearless, but I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's what you're saying where it's the, you feel the fear, but you just say, okay, take a back seat. I'm going to drive this one. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that, like, it's so natural for our body to be like, you are going 80 miles an hour, you are going to die. Mm -hmm. Like, that you can't, like, really turn that off. So I think, like, you just have to, like, get to a place where, you know that isn't controlling your actions and that's sort of i i think kind of like the trick to doing speed um but i think everybody's a little different and i so and then i've also been like very blessed like obviously i crashed in 
Aspen, but that was kind of a weird freak accident in part with the snow and everything mm-hmm. um, because it was like spring snow. So, but that's the only like major crash that I've had on World Cup. I know a lot of athletes who have had serious injuries like on a track at the World Cup then struggle at that track and like you know for better or worse my injuries were mostly in my bad injuries were mostly in training which also helps because you don't like go back to you know Val d'Azaire or yeah um, St. Anton or whatever and be like oh this is where I broke my leg like here's the turn where I broke my leg yeah you know that that seems like it's a tough um obstacle to overcome and actually when you mentioned coming back in 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 training so you came back from injury came back from your first knee injury and basically almost immediately um had another season-ending injury PCL MCL and I'm wondering like like maybe you were too fearless coming back to to training do you ever think about that lot about like what led up to my injuries and like I know a lot of people like you know in the medical world talk about like um what they call re-tears which is um re-injuring yourself either on the same leg or some people also include the other leg within two years from a ligament injury so Mm -hmm. and my my crash definitely fell into that category, but it was such a, my second crash was such a fluke accident. Like we were, I'd been back. I was on my second, like full camp back and I was training GS and like I had trained like speed. I went off of like some of the biggest jumps of my life, like on my knee. And it was like, doing totally fine and then and then it was also it was the other leg which what like you know some people are like oh that's not the same like you can favor the other leg but I don't think it was I think I I do think that like the second injury was uh, a culmination of some not great um conditions and I was on, I wanted to say, like, my 10th run, which we were, like, lapping really fast, so I, like, thought it was fine, but I think maybe now I probably wouldn't do 10 runs in a day. I don't think it was really Mm -hmm. fatigue, but I think that that just, like, didn't help, but then there's also, like, this part of me, so randomly, and I haven't really told this story, on the same day that I hurt myself, the very first run going down, we were at Mammoth. And there was this random guy who, like, skied across, like, right in front of me. And I missed him by inches. He was not paying attention. I screamed at him. He went across the course? He went right across the course. Uh And our our coaches couldn't see down there. And he went right across the course. He had headphones in. And by the time I saw him, like, I tried to scream at him to try to get him to move. But I didn't really have, like, any, like, other options. And... Uh, he just like skied past and then I think was like well bro like you were the one who almost hit me and I was like dude you're in a race course like you can't just <laughs> ski across a race yeah. course and not like look uphill or anything and have like headphones in so I think he definitely thinks I was in the wrong and I think he was in the wrong but but it was like part of me still is just like fate was just like out to get me that day and it was just huh. like a fluke accident do you believe like, do you believe do you believe in fate I don't 
know. Sorry, my speaker's talking to me. Um, all right, what were you, what were you saying? I don't know if I believe in fate, but it it did. I'm usually a very logical person, but I was like that day was crazy. Like, yeah, it's it's hard to explain days like that. I guess. Yeah. Huh. Well, so now I want to talk about. Why I mentioned I, you know, I, I know I know you. Um, on on some level, I can't I can't say that I know you super well, but something that I've noticed is that you're unafraid to voice your opinions. I I find that you're very like unapologetic in what you believe, and I think that's it. Seems like it's a really important piece of becoming a champion and. It has it gotten you places you wouldn't have otherwise gotten, um, or has it rubbed people the wrong way? Have you thought about it at all? Um, yeah, I mean, I get that from my mom a lot of it. She's like very opinionated and basically like never taught us like to keep our opinions to ourselves to like you know go along to get along, basically. Yeah, um you know, we were just raised in a family where it's like, if you see something that you don't agree with, then you say that. Mm -hmm. And, um, it definitely sometimes gets me into trouble, um, with people in part, cause I'm just like very direct. And so some people who like don't know me as well, or like haven't been around me a lot are just like, whoa, like <laughs> you just, just kind of came out of nowhere. But like, you know, personally I'm more bothered by like the person who like you know like sees like a poor situation where like you know let's just like put it as like there's like just a glass that's like riskily sitting on the corner of a table mm -hmm. and doesn't like say something to somebody about moving that and then like later on somebody hits it and then it's like on the floor like I feel like personally bad if I like don't say something in those situations mm -hmm. even though like nobody knows that you later on that you like saw it and didn't say something. Whereas then sometimes when you say something about that, then people are like, Oh, well like obviously. And then they like move it and they feel yeah. like, you know, kind of annoyed, but they don't know like what, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you no, it's a funny of, situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no, there's no benefits to not telling somebody about those situations, yeah. but there's like sometimes drawbacks to telling people about them. So that's like, I guess, um, what I would say about it, but yeah. I don't know. I think that like, I'm a like strong person and particularly in my experience within the realm of being a female athlete, there have been some instances where, um, yeah. I was surrounded by people who were, um, not the best people and kind yeah. of sexist and my ability to like voice my opinions and not really care what other people thought or like the only thing that saved my career. Because if I, if yeah. I was like, mm -hmm. you know, let like these, like frankly men like talk down to me when I was like young and tell me that I was no good and like couldn't do it, then like I wouldn't be here okay. if I had listened to them. I hope that there are young girls listening or just anyone listening really because yeah. I, and this is what I wanted to get at because you know 
in society, it kind of seems like women are just encouraged a little bit to be less assertive. And it's Mm -hmm. just kind of a pattern. And ski racing is, I mean, at least society is 50-50 men, women. Like ski racing is almost all dominated by men. There are so few women coaches. And I think that being a... I mean, you're you're the one having the experience, but it sounds like mm-hmm. being a woman in the sport, you have to be assertive or else you can get pushed around. Yeah, I mean, I know girls who are not assertive who have also made that work, so I'm not saying that you like have okay. to be assertive, but I think you have to be, regardless of your gender, you have to be strong when people tell you that you're weak. And you will inevitably run into people who will not believe you sometimes, like, in some ways actively work against you. And you have a choice at that point to, like, let them get you down or you can stand up. And what I've, as I've, like, gotten more kind of power within the sport as I've gotten, you know, higher up on the team and have like reached leadership positions. Like I also know that like when I first joined the team, there were certain things that I could stand up about and there were certain things that I could be assertive about. And that didn't make me very many friends, um, Mm -hmm. in certain places, but there were, there were certain times when I could not be, assertive and I could not voice my opinion because I was worried about, you know, my position on the team and the, yeah. And people kind of, you know, there's this like concept of like, so-and-so is quote unquote uncoachable. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of girls who have been told like, Oh, she's uncoachable. And it's Mm -hmm. usually because they get backed into a corner by some frankly male coach and that and they you know decide that they're to they're not going to take that and so yeah they don't act like nice people but for some reason rather than like everybody looking around and being like well why did so and so start being snarky and like not wanting to be around this coach and like talking back they're mm-hmm. like oh, she's just uncoachable. And it's like, yeah, everybody everybody at some point, if they meet a coach bad enough, will be uncoachable by that coach. Because if you're coachable by that coach, then that coach will just destroy you. Hmm. And I think we're doing like a much better job on the team than we used to. And part of that has to do with like people stepping up in leadership positions and people like acknowledging things and and just frankly, a lot better coaching staff. But I think we still, as a whole sport, need to do a better job of empowering athletes to be their own voice. Because if we always take the side of the person with authority, that gives the person with authority too much power. And I think anybody with too much power will act poorly. I don't think it's always that people are bad guys quote unquote it's just they get put into this position where it's and it's hard being a ski coach because you know essentially your job is to ensure the performance of other people which at the end of the day you have ultimately no control over so that's like a really stressful and tough position to be in for any human being 
Definitely. It's because I, I was like the being a coach and this whole dynamic you're describing, you're right, is really difficult to figure out because a coach is judged often off of the performance of their athletes. And, and, and with all this power they have, they're going to want to do and control everything they can possibly control. But at the end of the day, it's the athlete that's the one that's doing it, and the athlete does deserve to have some sort of power. It's kind of like like a kid will say to a parent, oh, you're not the boss of me. And uh-huh. it's kind of true. Like A parent can't force you to do anything, I guess, but they, they just have your best interests in mind. But there's just this kind of struggle back and forth. But I think, I think you're right. It's definitely... I, I Yeah, I'm, I'm just... Yeah. I haven't thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of like, you know, some coaches and I don't know if like you've ever experienced this or whatever, but they get into that situation and they're like, Oh, well the way to solve this problem is that if I take all the power from the athletes Mm -hmm. and I like take it all away from them or whatever, then like I have all the power. So when I tell them to like do well, then they'll just like be little drone robots and like do as I say. (laughs) But that just like never works out. And so then the next move is like, oh, well, like I'm expected to perform like regardless of what, you know, coach level you are, whether you're like, you know, working at like SMS or the US ski team, like whatever, then at that point you have a choice. Like you can either sometimes like you know tough situations come about and like shit happens it's a Mm -hmm. crazy sport so you have a choice you can either try to explain that to people or you can throw the athletes under the bus Mm -hmm. and some coaches you'll you can you know you can watch sometimes you know you get to like mid to late january and they're starting to feel like the season isn't going very well and then they're like I'm going to have to throw this athlete under the bus in the spring. Mm -hmm. And like, how do I like get enough evidence that like they're lazy or that it's the athlete's fault or they're like, yeah, Yeah. a head case or whatever. And so then they're just like, they spend like, you know, the rest of the season trying to do that. And I think sometimes that's why like a lot of athletes, you know, and, and the athletes kind of do it a little bit too, back to the coaches. They're like trying to find excuses as to why the coach didn't, do it for them yep too and sometimes that's that's why like athletes who don't like a lot of times if an athlete doesn't perform by like mid to end of january then they just struggle for the rest of the season because both sides are just kind of warring and trying to like yeah like find excuses rather than coming together that's like the moment when they need to like come together yeah and work together and be like how do we turn this around yeah and, and work and working together then involves mm-hmm. the the athlete being empowered like the coach letting the athlete voice their opinions yeah. but also you know those two having communicate i think communication is key but um we've done a lot of generalizations here and i and i just kind of want to be clear that we're not talking about anyone specifically this is not a conversation about the u.s ski team it's not a conversation about um you know in a certain academy it's just like talking about this this kind of tough dynamic between coaches and athletes especially as coaches get older as athletes get older because when you're younger it kind of seems like it's easy to go along with what the coach says and the coach generally has all of your best interests in mind um but i agree with that although i will say that the the converse to that is that 
the younger an athlete is, the easier it is for a coach to kind of like take oh. power, take yep. advantage of an athlete. Yeah. So I think that there's like both sides of that. But yes, we are talking like totally generally and not like any particular coach. But yeah. If you're a coach, it's the end of January, so time to come together <laughs> with the struggling athletes. There we go. Any coaches listening? Same any... with athletes. Yep. Time to get together with your coaches. Yep. And have a heart to heart and turn the season around. There you go. Well, I know some people haven't even started the season, so. Yeah. Well, I actually I love this. So any athletes and coaches listening, like let's let's do this. Come on. And any athletes and coaches listening who have a comment about this whole idea could be something to explore further. So send me a message. Um, I like it. Breezy, this was, I mean, this was really interesting to talk about. But I have one more question to get, well, I have a couple more questions, but one more big question to get to, which is okay. I've asked, so I asked Ted, how do you ski GS just straight up? And I'm going to kind of ask you how to ski downhill because my brain doesn't understand downhill. And I think a lot of people relate to this. It's just all that open space between the gates. I just, it's an overthinker's nightmare. So I, it seems like you've got a knack for finding your flow in downhill. What do you think about or how does it feel when you're on the right line? Um, downhill is definitely slower um, than... Like pace wise, it's slower. Mm -hmm. It's obviously physically faster, but I think the the trick that I find is, you know, you you really like you visualize your line. You figure out kind of like the spots that you want to hit, and it's okay to be like literally like I want to be exactly one ski length off of the blue die line here, and then you kind of that's the way like I started out and like have worked from there, um, to start being like, you know, here, I'm going to be a ski length off halfway through the double. I'm going to be, you know, halfway between the gates, you know, at the exit, I'll be tight or a meter off or whatever. And you start by like hitting those points and then they slowly begin to like work into more like flowy state, I guess, where you're not like, you know, kind of being like, you know, kind of double turning or whatever. Um, but then the other thing that helps me is like, you do have a lot of time. And I know like when I was growing up ski racing, like coaches were always like, don't think about anything during the race. Like just think about tactics. And I, especially in downhill, no longer believe that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I totally huh. am always about like thinking about fundamentals. Like I come into like a really big turn and I'm like, you were going to be so over the outside ski here. You were going to be like arcing, but you were going to like, just be like stomping on that outside ski. And then like, you know, on the next one, I'm going to be like, you're going to be like, you know, going deep into here, which means like, um, coming in straighter and then hammering kind of later in the turn quote unquote mm -hmm. um and things like that and then like obviously like you know like Cromontana, like that flat section it's like it's almost like a cat road it's like a wide cat road like you're just like i want to like basically not be able to see because my head is like so low down so mm -hmm. i think adding those things in helps it helps you not be like okay i don't know what i'm doing like i don't know what to do next <laughs> yeah <laughs> because definitely that can happen although i also know people who think about like what they're going to eat for dinner on those flats so good for them that yeah 
Well, if it works for them, I guess it works for them. Yeah. So looking so. looking ahead, that was I think that was helpful. I think the the idea of starting with like places to hit and then start and then starting to kind of just feel the flow more, adding in cues. I like that. So from what I understand, yeah, it's also remarkable. Like when you in downhill, that's kind of one of the funnest parts about downhill is you can be like. I want to be exactly six inches off of the upper blue dial line on this skate. Mm-hmm. And then you'll like ski it and you'll be like, I literally was exactly six inches off of that upper blue dial line. Like that's kind of cool. Whereas like a lot of times in super G or GS, it just kind of all goes to hell. So yeah. you're kind of wherever you ended up. <laughs> so you, you kind of like, cause, cause you haven't scored many points in super G, but you're getting podiums in downhill is, is that kind of the difference is in downhill. You, you, you like having that plan. You like having the training runs to make that plan. Mm, somewhat i think super g is a very difficult event it's the event that i respect the most i think it's the hardest event mm-hmm. props to you for having that be your best event <laughs> um but yeah usually like i don't if i knew how to ski super g really well then maybe you'd be doing i it. would be doing it <laughs> so i'm not the best person to ask on what the proper what the difference is why yeah. i can't ski well because maybe if i totally knew that i'd be able to ski super g really well yeah. well sometimes even when you know what you're doing wrong it's still hard to actually do it yeah yeah that's for sure so in terms of i i always say that i'm an anti-expectations podcast so you can know that um when do, there's no pressure from this part of the media the uh, arc city podcast gives no pressure um, I, I joke about having only World Cup winners in the podcast, but there's no, there's no sort of prerequisite. Um, I don't, you know, discriminate. And I, and I hope there, I basically, I, I want to ask you about next year, but I want to ask it in a way that there's no pressure. Um, so what are your goals for the end of this season and next year? Well, um, I mean, this season kind of got just blown wide open. I mean, I really feel for Sophia Gocha. Mm-hmm. Big shout out to her. I'm very sorry you got injured. Sounds like it was quite the freak accident that day. Sucked. And I've been there with those freak accidents. They are, I think, the worst. When I tore my ACL, it was like kind of a little bit my fault, but I like knew why I did it and I could accept that. I could accept the risk of doing that. But my second one was quite a freak accident and it was less of a freak accident accident than hers was. So and she's leading the downhill standings. She is leading the downhill standings by quite a lot, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with her. So I definitely want to ski my best in the three downhill races left. Um, I still have had a big season long goal to win a world cup. I think that it's, coming um mm-hmm. but and you know world champs um i'm excited to go back to cortina mm-hmm. and excited to see what happens there but in general i'm just always like you know i know basically all of the downhill tracks at this point like really well and i've skied pretty well or really well at basically all of them at this point so i like or i at least like know what good skiing should feel like or look like on all those tracks mm-hmm. um so i really just want to ski well at all my races i think that that's like a big thing and then 
Um, next year, um, I just want to, yeah, work really hard and do a lot. But, um, again, like you can never control everything. I think my experience from the last Olympics, like I came in, I knew that I had a shot at a medal at the Olympics, Mm -hmm. but I also knew that like I came in as like an underdog. So I needed to do really, really well. And a few other people needed to kind of screw up. And my goal walking out of the Olympics was to come back as a favorite where everybody else was hoping that I would screw up. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I'm definitely getting towards that place. I think you are, um, yeah. And so, but, you know, last time I, you know, did, I was, that was like what I was most proud of was that I executed my plan and I did as well as I possibly could. And if I keep doing that, then um, we'll see what happens. But I want to keep my head on straight in all yeah. respects. It's hard to do. Definitely. As we all do. And and it's I think it's gonna be hard. Like I, I'm kind of guilty of this. Like the media is gonna be asking you, you know, NBC is gonna come around this summer and be like, what do you think about the Olympics? You know, so keeping your keeping your head on straight and just staying focused focused on your skiing will become important. And now as we we don't have much time left, but I realize mm-hmm. I usually ask a couple fun questions and we were mm-hmm. serious the whole time basically. So oh. I've got two for you. The first one is I was on Wikipedia as I always the all, the first way I always start my research. Mm. And your real name is not Breezy. It's Brianna, Brianna? My real name is Breezy. Oh. Um yeah, so I actually had it changed when I applied for colleges. Um but yes, I was born Brianna, but my grandma really liked the name Breezy, and she had a neighbor who was named Brianna, but they called her Breezy. And so she huh. talked, my parents were going to call me Bree, and then she was like, you should call it Breezy, and they liked that. Um, so you've always been Breezy? Which is a lot less breezy? cool than me, like, yeah, I've always been Breezy. Uh-huh. It's a lot less cool than, like, me having, like, some crazy story where, like, I don't know, I got, like, blown away in the breeze on, like... <laughs> with like a balloon at like a small children's birthday party but um i like to say that i had to live up to my name gotcha and your and your motto is like the wind yeah because whenever you tell people like your name is breezy they like either just like give you a really strange look or they go what and so i always (laughs) say breezy and then when they give me that look i go like the wind and then they're like oh yeah that's so perfect but then also it's like ski fast like the wind yeah exactly and my so my second uh question is um your instagram your your brand on instagram is kind of your stream of photos of you jumping into freezing cold Mm. lakes so a lot of people would just wonder why Yeah, I honestly don't totally know, but it's just like this, it started off as this thing that I started doing and I would like go to these like really cold alpine lakes and then it sort of became this like, it's sort of like a quest now. Like Uh if somebody has a really cool, cold alpine lakes near where they live and they want to like help me find them or get to them, then (laughs) like let me know, give me a shout out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
But, like, there's some crazy ones that I've been to in the Tetons, and there's more on my list that I want to go to. Um, so it's sort of just like an adventure at this point to try to get to these insane places. Yeah. Um, and then you jump in the really cold water because why not? Because fear is in the back seat. It, it, it's actually the same thing. You're like, stand, it's like cliff jumping. If anybody's yeah. ever been cliff jumping, that's what downhill is. That was like, I actually say that I like attribute my downhill skiing to cliff jumping. Cause I like was standing at the top of a cliff jump and I was like, I know you're terrified, but like just jump. And yeah. then I did it. And I was like, Oh wow. Like fear doesn't like actually control what I do. Maybe I can be fearful and still do it. That is cool. The inter- and it's the same with the cold. You're just like, it's going to be really cold, but just jump. The interview just came full circle. I love that. Well, so we're going to bring in Loren, but before we do that, I always ask guests if they want to um, say any last words or plug any brand or organization. So you got anything? Um, big shout out to my home mountain, Jackson Hole. They're mm-hmm. my headgear sponsor this year, but they've also like supported me through like really, really tough times, like when I was injured mm-hmm. and allowed me to like continue to pay my bills when really everybody else was kind of like i'm sorry you're a ski racer i think not um and i wasn't really making a lot of money and then they're also like obviously the best ski resort in the u.s so that's hard to argue to them yeah yeah there's a reason that we have taken we took tommy biesmeyer for a while and steven nyman steven nyman has good taste and there's a reason he lives in jackson (laughs) got it um all right, is is Loren around or? Yeah, let me go find her. Okay. Hey, Loren. Tamine. Oh wow, your room is so much bigger than mine. Really? <laughs> I thought my room would be like, mine like, is the tiny. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh, so small. <laughs> um, what's up? Um, not much. I am excited to have you on. Welcome to Arc City. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's a it's a wonderful little town, and its population is growing. Yeah, so Loren Ross is a teammate of Breezy's and a U.S. speed skier veteran at this point. Um, and I know you both want to say a few words about mentorship. So let's start with you, Loren. Can you fill us in on the culture of the mentorship on the U.S. team and why you wanted to talk about it today? Yeah, so I guess... I'll start at the beginning when I was young coming onto the team. I guess I was probably, I think it was 20 when I started skiing World Cups. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had an overall NORAM spot. So I was kind of skiing in all events. Um, And I started traveling to Europe and skiing with the World Cup team and had a hard time like finding my place, I guess, because I was going back and forth between tech and speed so much. Um, But Mm -hmm. I found... Uh, some solace in Julia and she really kind of took me under her wing for those first couple years because we sort of both traveled together back and forth between tech and speed. Mm -hmm. Um, I took some road trips with her in her van and this is Julia Mancuso, right? Yeah. Yeah. Julia Mancuso. And it was just so nice to have somebody who, I could tell, you know, wanted me to do well and also um, was a really great skier to look up to and a wonderful human being as well. I have a lot of things in common with Julia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both 
enjoy a lot of other things apart from ski racing, which you don't always find in ski racers. A lot of skiers eat, sleep, and breathe skiing, and Jules and I are different in that way that we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really nice to have that and to kind of find camaraderie with her and also just have her, like, help me, you know, get to know different speed courses and kind of introduced me to traveling and uh, different cultures. And um, yeah, it was really wonderful to have her around. And then also Lindsay, as I started skiing more speed, was such a good mentor to me and all of the girls on the speed team. She was always really helpful with, you know, figuring out line on different courses and equipment. And um, I don't know, just like being kind and generous was such a huge thing because I'd heard some really terrible horror stories about people getting, um, you know, kind of bullied as they came onto the team. And yeah, this was a while ago before my, I guess, generation before me, I never really saw it. So I was really grateful for that, but I was terrified to come onto the world cup scene because I had heard of people, um, you know, having to go through getting their heads stuck in the toilets and stuff like that. <laughs> so it was nice to not have to deal with that and a really wonderful welcome surprise to have people who, you know, helped bring me up and um, encourage me to do well instead of trying to, you know, beat me up and bully me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and your hair's too pretty to go in toilets anyway. <laughs> and obvious, obviously, obviously time so <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that would have been worse it would have gotten all stuck oh, in there so gross. <laughs> God, yeah. okay. i i had i did not imagine i'd be discussing the um technicalities of putting a head in the toilet um <laughs> in this podcast um but so to to kind of get back um i've lost my train of thought but so so now, Loren, as obviously you've had a you've had a pretty successful World Cup career, and now as you've seen how that mentorship model has worked, I guess you kind of are turning now to the younger athletes to do your part, right? Yeah, exactly. And I don't really know when that switched. I guess when Linz was um, considering retirement and had a couple years there where. Um, she was, you know, the older one on the team. I kind of still felt like she was sort of my mentor, but um, also recognized that I had about eight years on the youngest athletes on the team. So I was definitely reaching the other side of the picture. And uh, yeah, I guess it was just kind of my duty. And also I really enjoy um, taking the younger girls under my wing, I suppose, and trying to help them and teach them and encourage them. And I don't know, I guess show them y- unique parts of traveling and being a world cup racer too. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts. Do you have anything to add to that breezy? Yeah. I mean, I guess I like joined the team about five or six years ago now. And I was like, very kind of surprised because there's always this kind of like cutthroat competition that just inevitably arises out of like being on the Noram tour where it's just like inevitable that if like if I do well and like my teammate does 
well but slightly less well then like she's not going to get the start whereas like if we both do poorly but she does slightly less poorly and is then therefore like in front of you then like she gets the start even though obviously the former situation like both athletes are better and when I came onto the world cup I was like really like excited because everybody was just really confident in like who they were in their own skiing and their abilities and that like allowed them to take other people on and like Loren like mentored me and when and we in the 27 the year of 2017 um we like joined together and we were we had the same technician and Mm -hmm. like that could have been like a very tenuous relationship I think um but instead she was like super welcoming and we were like able to kind of work together and um even though we were on different brands, like we were running up the chairlifts. And so she taught me a lot in those times about ski racing too. But I think I have personally believed on the women's side, um, barring all swirlies that ever took place. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, you know, you had like peekaboo street and like that in many ways kind of led into Lindsay Vaughn and then has led into the powerhouse of the speed team today so I think that a lot of Lindsay's legacy and peekaboo's legacy and Loren's legacy and everybody who's ever been part of the speed team in a positive way it are the current speed people so I think that's like something that I've like taken to heart too is it's like it's not just about like your own results but it's also about the results of the people who come after you too and that's like that's part, part of your of legacy it. exactly yeah well I, I wish we had more time to talk about this because it's definitely an important part of ski racing and it's it, it's become an identity I think on the men's side too but I, I definitely see it in the women's side this identity of the team do you guys have any last thoughts Loren? Um, I guess not necessarily anything crazy, just kind of echoing what Breezy said and kind of, um, realizing as I've grown and gotten older as a skier that it's not just about me and it's not just about my results. It's also about my friends and my teammates and it is, maybe it is about my legacy, which I don't really think is even a thing, but, um, (laughs) no, it is, but it's more, that's not true. It's more about like, just, I don't know, sharing, sharing this lifestyle and sharing friendship and sharing love and passion for something that we all are so deeply passionate about. Um, that has been one of the biggest things for me and the biggest drivers of me continuing to ski. Yeah, I like that. That's a great answer. And and don't worry about your legacy because it's recorded right here in the halls of Arc City. <laughs> oh, good. It's yeah. going to survive. It's going to survive. The people will know we'll about your legacy. The, the Apple podcast forever. <laughs> If nowhere else, know that it's here. Okay, awesome. Well, guys, I really appreciate um, the time. And um, yeah, thank you for visiting Arc City. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy.
to quickly, very quickly, just plug this app called GiveGo. So that's G-I-V-E-G-O, GiveGo, like it sounds. Basically, whether you're just learning to ski or you're a full-time racer, you can submit a short video and quote-unquote experts, I'm one of these experts, will give you feedback. And it gives you a chance to get some coaching, maybe outside of the coaching you normally get, and it gives me a chance to, while I'm sitting on the couch with a broken leg, to make some money to support my ski racing career. Again, that's GiveGo, and right now it's only available in the North American iPhone App Store, but it should be available on Android and hopefully internationally soon. So, check it out. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from? So as I look into the mailbox here, first up, we've got a letter from a Stephen who wrote me and said, just got back into ski racing as an adult master's racer after a 22 plus year hiatus from the gates. As I work to re-immerse myself with ski racing in general, it's been great to have your podcast to listen to. I've even started going back and listening to previous episodes you did with ski racing media, which I've also enjoyed. Yeah, rip it up out there. And to everyone, you know, check out ski racing this week. It's on all the podcast platforms, and I did a whole bunch of episodes with them. A Linda wrote, Love listening to Arc City while I walk our newest edition, a pandemic puppy named Moose. A Phil messaged me to tell me that he recommends the podcast to all of the kids he coaches at Gore Mountain, which I love. It has been a goal of mine to have young ski racers listen in because I think there's a lot of knowledge to be gained. And so if you're a junior racer and you like listening, shoot me a message. And Ed listened to the episode with Lucas and said, I think that skiing needs some guys like you to develop and get more people aware of the sport. Hey, man. Hey, Ed. That's the goal. I love it. And finally, Ski Town All-Stars, the rapidly growing hat company. Check them out. They make some really cool hats. Based in Vail, Colorado. Mentioned me in an Instagram story. It was a video of them listening to Arc City in the car. So now I'm curious. Where do you all listen to the podcast? Tag me in an Instagram story to let me know. If you've made it this far in the episode, I will let you in on a little secret. Wait, first I gotta say something. I'm trying to grow the population of Arc City and you can help me. The goal is, my goal is to bring cool and entertaining stories to ski racers and ski racing in general. And if you click subscribe, if you leave me a five-star review, and if you shoot an episode that you like to your friend, your coach, your kids, your team, whatever, you're helping Arc City grow. You're helping me reach more people, and that's the goal with all this. Anyway, the, the, the secret I was going to tell you was I did an interview a couple days ago with a Paralympian by the name of Ralph Green, and he was probably one of my favorite interviews ever. It's going to be an awesome episode, so be sure to tune into that. Let anyone know about that. Anyway, make sure to keep ripping arcs out there this winter. Stay stoked. I will see you right back here in Arc City next episode. Until then, I'm Jimmy Kripka, and thank you for visiting Arc City. Arc City.